Uh, good morning to you all. How are you today? I've got to ask you, did you write that? You didn't write that? Okay, all right. I was about to say, we're, I was about to say we're finna sign you up and try to get you promoted or something, because that was fantastic. If you have your Bibles, open to uh, the Gospel of Luke with me, please. Luke chapter 12. Have you been craving the book of Luke? Boy, that was, whew. I heard crickets out there, man. Good grief. Well, get ready, because we're back in Luke. Amen? All right. Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12. Remember, Parkway Baptist Church is a church that is driven by the Word, transformed by the Spirit, and sent by the Son of God to make disciples of all nations. That is what we are about. That is what we are trying. That, that, though, that statement drives everything that we do uh, here at Parkway Baptist Church. It's good to be back with you. I've been out of the pulpit for a little while. Not too long, but I've been out for, for a few Sundays and uh, took a little vacation and course, then we came right from vacation right into Vacation Bible School. Can I get a witness? My goodness gracious, I still don't think that we have fully recovered uh, from Vacation Bible School. For those of you that, that serve in that, you know it is an incredible ministry. It is the largest uh, outreach that Southern Baptists do uh, in the domestic United States uh, ever. And so it's, it's, a big, it's a big deal for us, and uh, my goodness, did it, did it go well? Those of you that served and experienced it, it was wonderful. We had somewhere between 70 and 80 kids a night, and uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful. I think, I think we've got a couple of guests here this morning uh, who actually came for that week. So it's wonderful, and I'm always so privileged to participate in that. So join me in Luke chapter 12. The parallel for what we're going to be in today is Matthew 16, 1 through 4. Now, for several months, we have been walking through the gospel of Luke, several months. And Luke gives us the purpose of his gospel in verse chapter 1. Okay, in verse chapter 1, Luke writes this as he begins his work. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's goal and the reason why we are going so thoroughly through this is so that we, those of us that are reading and studying this book, may have certainty about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're doing this. The purpose of Luke's gospel is to provide a chronological account of the life of the ministry of Jesus Christ so that we may believe in the Son of God. Now what you'll find if you research on the book of Luke is, is that secular scholars, worldly scholars, will testify to the fact that the Gospel of Luke is one of the most well-written ancient documents that we have preserved today. So even secular people see the authority and the organization of the Gospel of Luke. So, so far we have been through nearly 12 chapters. Today we will finish chapter 12. Now, it's, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, so let's take just a few minutes to reestablish our location in the text by walking through a brief review of where we have been. Now, don't panic. I'm not about to try to give you 11 chapters in 10 minutes, okay? That's not what I'm about to do. But I'm going to give you just a, little, just a little bit of a review to help you. And this process always, it, is, it helps me, so surely it would help all of us to keep the context of the Word of God, which will help us to derive the meaning of the original audience, which helps us to properly apply God's Word today. 
And that's what we want to do is properly apply God's word today. So at the end of chapter 11, if you have your Bible and you're open to 12, just, just flip back to chapter 11 just for a second. And at the end of chapter 11, right before you come into chapter 12, what you see, what we experience together, and this just really took my breath away when, when, I, when I began to expound the Gospel of Luke and read the Gospel of Luke. I mean, you, you read the Bible through, uh, you know, several times, but reading through it and then going very slowly through it and studying it can be two totally different things. Would you agree with that? Totally different. And so as I read slowly through this, and, I re and to prepare for you and to study for, for me and for you, I, I didn't realize the gravity of what Christ did when he was invited to that, to that Pharisee's house. This group of Pharisees invites Jesus to come to his house, this one Pharisee's home, for a meal. And Jesus goes there, and through a, through a series of events, he doesn't wash his hands, and they criticize him for that. And then once he gets criticized for that, Jesus launches into one of the harshest criticisms that is recorded in Scripture. In Matthew, it's called the, the seven woes. In Matthew 23, I believe it is. But Christ gives this harsh rebuke to a group of scribes and Pharisees at a Pharisee's house during a meal. And this is not just any normal rebuke. This is what Scripture calls a woe. It is an Old Testament prophetical method of bringing strong, corrective rebuke to those who are going in a wrong direction to try to turn them from their ways to come back to God. And that is what Jesus gives them in the privacy of their own home with probably dozens of the Pharisees' friends and, and the disciples, Christ issues five very harsh woes to them. Matthew 23, they're called the seven woes to the Pharisees. And as you read it, when you read that passage, I don't know about you, but, but it makes me extremely uncomfortable to imagine sitting in a room with the Son of God as he gives a scathing rebuke to leaders that he has passed by. Because one of their issues with Jesus was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they felt like Jesus should have chosen them to be his disciples. After all, they are the Jewish ruling, ruling class. But instead, Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? Who did he choose? Fishermen, common, everyday, ordinary type of people, tax collectors, fishermen, and the such. And so this built into a, a just very heated exchange that Jesus gives them, stunningly harsh. So when Christ is done with the rebuke, the response of the Jewish leadership was not good, to say the least. Instead of coming to repentance, coming to repentance and realizing their sin and accepting Jesus Christ, they actually began to ramp up the attacks against him. Have you ever noticed that truth has that effect on some people? Truth has that effect on some people. Some people come to repentance and they believe it. Other people hear the truth and they hate it and they don't want to hear it and they attack it even harder and that's what they did. In chapter 11, verse 53, you hear, as he went away from there, meaning Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. 
So just, 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 just provoking him, saying, saying things just to try to make him mad and throw him off balance, to get him to, to trap him, to get him to say something that then they could even persecute him with more. And the disciples are witnessing all of this. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for what will befall them all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout their life. And he is trying to prepare us to understand that the Christian walk, a true Christian walk, is no cakewalk. It is no easy call in life. Can I get a witness? It is difficult. Even in the freest country in the world, walking with Jesus is becoming more and more difficult as each passing year comes. Each passing year. Persecution will always be a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is what he is trying to teach these disciples and teach the crowds that follow him. In chapter 12, we have a major transition in Christ's teaching as he prepares the disciples for the, for the change in intensity in the persecution and resistance to his mission. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, say it with me, hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I can testify, and as I have many times, and you can probably testify as well, probably the single most damaging thing that happens within Christianity is professing Christians living and acting in hypocritical ways. Can you amen that? That is why Jesus calls it leaven. Because it soaks through, it is insidious. One little bit can leaven the entire lump. You cannot allow it to stay. Jesus is so harsh about this because he knows the danger, because he is the Messiah, because he is the Son of God, and because he knows how dangerous it can be. And he knows the last people that he wants to succumb to the leaven of the Pharisees are the 12 that he has chosen to follow him, that after he is gone, after he has ascended into heaven, that will carry the message forward. Therefore, he gives this warning to them so they understand how dangerous and how serious the leaven of the Pharisees can be. The disciples will see the Pharisees systematically persecute him and, and antagonize him and structure a labyrinth of deceit that winds up putting Christ on Calvary's cross. That is how powerful the leaven of the Pharisees is. That is why Jesus goes to extraordinary lengths in this chapter to try to help us understand how dangerous it is, to try to give us some principles that we can apply in our life as he gave some principles to apply in the disciples' life to be sure we avoid that. Do we avoid it? So there's two, there's two applications for the disciples and for us on this teaching. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Number one, he was training them to beware of the Pharisees as Jewish leaders because you could not trust them. You can't trust a hypocrite. You just can't. They live a double life. They are spiritually sick. 
You can't trust what they say or what they do, and they were the primary ones that made Jesus' life extremely difficult in his time in ministry, and as I said, would be responsible for putting him on Calvary's cross. Watch out for them. Watch out for them. They invited me to their house to try to trap me, but I turned it on them and gave them a scathing rebuke because I didn't wash my hands. That's what all that was about. He didn't follow the traditions of the elders. He sat down and was ready to eat instead of washing his hands. Second, you don't want to become like the Pharisees and be a hypocrite. You don't want that leaven in your life. You don't want to be known as a hypocrite to say one thing and then do another, to put on a happy face when inside you feel anything but happy, to pretend to be godly but inside be a ravenous wolf. Jesus would say things like this, you are unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So first, beware these men. These men that want the praise of men, that want the great seats in the synagogue, that want to be first without being last. Beware of them. Watch what they say. Be careful what you say around them. And second, for heaven's sakes, don't become like them. That's Jesus' whole thrust here. Then in 12, this whole chapter, he gives you several, several chunks of text, beginning in verse 4, all the way through the end. And in each one of these, I believe that he is giving us the antidote for avoiding the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, that is not the name of the message that just came to me while I was up here. Amen? It is the antidote for avoiding the leaven of the Pharisees. Number one, fear God and not man, put fear in its right place. Don't fear those that can only kill the body. Fear the one who can cast you into hell after he's killed you. Don't fear these Pharisees. Don't fear them. Fear me and fear God. Don't fear them. Number two, always acknowledge Christ. Now here's the kicker, no matter the cost. If there is a knife to your throat, and someone asks you to believe in, do you believe in Jesus? Is he your savior? What do you say? Yes. yes. And let them, let them do it. Acknowledge Christ before men, even if it costs you your life. Do not lay up yourself for yourself treasure on earth. Live a life of sacrifice for others. Focus on building the eternal kingdom more than your earthly wealth more than your earthly wealth. Do not be anxious over the basic needs of your life, food and clothing, he says. Then he gives the example of ravens and lilies. Ravens don't have to, they don't have barns, they don't store up food, but yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. Look at the lilies, they are arrayed more beautifully than Solomon. And yet they are here one day and gone tomorrow. A sparrow, surely you're worth more than a sparrow, you're worth more than lilies, you're worth more than ravens. Your Father is sovereign over your life and will provide for you. Don't worry and have anxiety over your daily needs. To avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus tells us to always live in the reality that one day you will be called to judgment for your life spent on earth. So we need to be a good steward of what God has given us. Would you agree with that? 
One day, judgment is coming. Jesus has ascended. At this point, he had not been crucified and had not ascended, but he was giving them a little taste of what was coming so that when the time came, hopefully they would reflect back on his words and remember the different, the different examples of the good stewards and the bad stewards that he gave them. And how as the groomsmen supporters, that when that groomsman comes back, the do- they would be ready to open the door and allow him to come in, to be always prepared, to be always dressed and to always be prepared. To avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, you must realize that the truth of the gospel brings judgment. We do not like that word. Southern Baptists, we we should embrace that word, love that word, understand that word, plan our life around that word, but more times than not, we don't want to hear it, we don't want to talk about it, we buy into this garbage. The last 30 years, we say, judge not, lest ye be judged. So we take judgment, we we allow right and wrong and discernment and wisdom out the window because we're not supposed to judge. Not true. Not true. Of all people of the earth, Christians should have the soundest, most stable judgment of all people of the earth. And why would that be? Because we have this because we have the truth. That's why. To avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, you must realize that the truth of the gospel brings judgment, that Jesus came to initiate the final judgment, that Jesus' coming results in division in your immediate and extended families. I don't like that at all, but it is absolutely, positively true. Absolutely. The gospel brings a sword to your home. It does. And to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, we can't pretend that that doesn't exist. We have to realize it exists, we have to plan for it, we have to pray for it, we have to prepare for it. Not ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. To deny the truth of the gospel, any truth of the gospel is the insidious leaven that sneaks into our life and begins to woo us to sleep and drift off into false teaching and into pluralism, and into liberalism, and everything else that has plagued the gospel and plagued the church for 2,000 years. To avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, you must be more attuned to the word of God than weather conditions. Remember that, remember that statement he said in verse 54? When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The Son of God is here. He is performing miracles. He is casting out demons. He is giving sight to the blind. He is giving hearing to the deaf. But yet, you know more about weather patterns than you do about the coming Messiah. Hypocrites, he says. And now today, for our final passage in chapter 12, we look at Luke 57 through 59, two verses. And why do you, and and I I talk about judgment, if you were kind of mad at me a little bit on that little tear I did on judgment, be prepared for Jesus to kind of goad you a little bit, okay? Verse 57, and why do you not, what? Say it louder. Why do you not, what? Louder. Why do you not, what? I'll move on now. Why do you not judge? 
for yourselves what is what? Ah. So the Son of God, the one that created me and you, he's telling us in his word that we should have the gumption and the wherewithal in our mind to be able to, as human beings made in his image, to look at a situation and to discern what is right and what is what? Yes. Friends, is called judging. But our culture is doing everything it can to blur those lines. Do you, do you, do you see that happening? E even, even biological realities. I'll tell you the two places they will never succeed in that is telling us that fire doesn't burn and water won't drown, amen? They won't succeed there, but they're trying everywhere else. Jesus says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Verse 58, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. Wow. Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. All right, so you're in the crowd, Jesus is talking, and he gives you this weather example. Then, boom, all of a sudden, you're in court with an accuser. What in the world is he doing? He's bringing us, he's bringing the crowd, and he's bringing us to a moment of urgent decision-making. Urgent decision-making. Have you ever been put in an urgent decision-making position before? Urgent. I mean, like time is of the essence. I mean, if I don't make this decision, I, I mean, I, I'm afraid to make the decision, I'm afraid not to make the decision, but at some point, what do I have to do? You gotta make the decision. So Jesus has given them all of this information. Now, the crowds have swollen. The Bible tells us there were thousands around. And so Jesus opens this up and he gives us this parable. Now, this parable serves as a call for decision. Two years. You know, I, I, I have, uh, there's been a few times that I have been involved in legal matters. There were a long time ago before I was a Christian. Amen? I want to be sure you know that. Okay? And the one thing that I remember about those instances is that they captured my attention. There was, there, was, there was nothing that could distract me from them. They held my attention because I knew at some point, no matter what happened, that my life could take a drastic turn one way or the other depending on how it all fleshed out. One such issue, one of the more serious instances in this particular legal battle, drug out for two years when I was in my mid-20s. Two years, drug out for two years. Two years wondering what exactly was going to happen. My life had drastically changed. I wasn't the same person I was when I got in trouble. My life had drastically changed, but I still had to face the court and I had no idea exactly how it would turn out. And you know how lawyers are, amen? Don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about it. Everything's gonna be okay. And I'm going, that's not good enough for me. I mean, I'm in trouble here, and I need you to tell me a worst-case scenario and a best-case scenario, and all they really tell you is, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be okay. But I was still scared to death. 
For all I knew, I was gonna have to spend time in jail or at the very least have a hefty fine and lose my job again. That entire experience was a life-defining moment for me and one that I reflect on frequently. I think that is why Christ uses this parable in this instance. He is desperately trying to get the Pharisees and the people's attention because they do not, for whatever reason, they do not understand the depth of the peril that they are in. They can look up at the clouds and discern what the weather's gonna do, but heaven, hell, and Jesus and what lies ahead didn't seem to be in their mind. And so Jesus uses this parable of this courtroom situation to help them understand because all of them would understand the grave consequences of being put in prison and forced to pay money that they owe. That is a very common reality in their time and a common reality today. So verse 57 and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? So, so humans have the ability to know right from wrong. That, that's basically what Jesus is saying here when he opens up with this question. That's what he's saying. He's trying to help them realize they must apply their use of common sense to the spiritual realm. He's casting himself beside the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and trying to get them to see how clear the distinction is between them. I mean, surely they can see the difference between Christ and the Pharisees. Surely they can see that. I mean, if they can look up at the sky and notice changes in weather patterns, surely they should be able to see the blatant disparity, blatant disparity between Christ's character and the Pharisees' character and actions and the hypocritical Jewish leadership. Surely they can see that. Now, don't miss this. Christ is challenging them to judge the situation. Judge for yourself what is right, Jesus says, and ultimately that is exactly what we have to do. We've already hit this. Even though the culture has tried to convince us to shut off our ability to judge things right or wrong, Christ does just the opposite. He says you have to. He uses a parable to press this issue and someone that everyone would understand. Christ puts them in a crisis situation that involves money, a debtor, a judge, a magistrate, and the possibility for a long prison sentence. So this is an earthly example of a heavenly reality, which is what a parable is. Verse 58, he says, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. Now there's two things going on here. There's a spiritual part of this, but there's also a practical part of this. And I'm gonna try to weave both of those together as we close this out. So keep your disagreements, brothers and sisters, keep your disagreements out of the courts if at all possible. Can I hear an amen on that? Do any of you look forward to going to court? No. And if you do, I hope to the Lord Jesus you're being paid for it, amen? I do. Nobody wants to go to court. Nobody wants to be in court. I certainly don't. If you've been, if something bad has happened to you and you have to, I understand sometimes you may force to be, be forced to do that. But if it's all possible, Jesus says, keep your disagreement out of the courts if at all possible. So Christ gives a possible scenario of a person that has been accused of not paying a debt. The accuser is the one the debt is owed, and this situation has come to the point that the man must be forced to pay what he owes by being taken before the magistrate. 
In contemporary society, this would be the act of filing a civil suit against someone to get the court's assistance in deciding the outcome of the situation. But in this, Christ gives some valuable, valuable, valuable advice. He says, as you are on your way to the magistrate, when your court date comes, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and you lose and go to jail. Very simple. Christ says, make an effort to settle. Is this guaranteed to work? No, it's not. But Jesus says, make an effort. Trust him, reach out to the accuser, and make an effort. It doesn't hurt to try to reason with the accuser and see if by some chance the accuser may judge what is right or wrong and, and cut some kind of deal with you before you get in front of the magistrate, before all this whole thing happens. He may grant it to you and a settlement may be established. All the while, remember, it may not be possible to settle the accuser may too be mad and want to take you to court. He may not be willing to accept the terms you offer, but still the point remains, make an effort. So the best case scenario is the accuser accepts the terms you offer to settle outside of court, saving everyone court costs and time. The worst case scenario, the accuser rejects the terms you offer, takes you to court, and you lose, and you're locked up until the debt is paid. But Jesus says, if at all possible, keep your disagreements out of the courts. Verse 59, I tell you, you will never get out of jail. You've paid the very last penny. The final point in 59 is the consequences of the trial can be devastating. So what are these two different things that Jesus is trying to tell us that's the practical than the spiritual? So the temporal and the physical is Christians should do everything in their power to live at peace with one another and those they deal with in society. Legal action should be an absolute last resort and only used in the most dire of circumstances. If you look, look at 1 Corinthians right quick. Right quick. It won't take long. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to read it right quick and then move on. Lawsuits against believers. Is, is, I use the ESV and that's the heading for this, for this section of the text. When one of you has a grievance against another, do not dare, do, oh, excuse me, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? There's that word again. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? How interesting is that? Look, at you see the comparison he just made? That's a powerful comparison. He said, one of these days, you're going to be judging the world along with Christ. So you can't handle the simple trivial matter down here, especially since that's going to be the call on your life in eternity. That's a pretty powerful comparison Paul uses. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Wow. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? That's, that's strong. That is strong. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He goes on. So the instruction is very clear. 
if at all possible, don't do it. What would leave a better witness for others? Using your power and money as a Christian to drag someone to court and force them to pay, or being benevolent and kind, extending mercy and settling with them peaceably outside the court? Jesus and Paul are very clear. Christians should not sue one another. They should settle their differences amicably outside of the civil magistrate. That's the temporal, earthly application to what Jesus is saying. Now, the parabolic portion is this, and this is where we will close. All those in the crowd that day listening to Jesus have a spiritual indebtedness to God that they cannot pay. The time of judgment is coming when we will all be taken before the God of the universe and be judged. Now get this, get this little spin. Jesus has provided a way for us to settle outside of court. Do you see that? Jesus has provided a way for us to settle outside of court and that is to trust and believe in him. We are forgiven in Christ. So we settle outside of court with Jesus and not risk imprisonment, which is symbolic for where? Hell. You see that? Hell. That is what Jesus is telling the crowds that day, urging them to believe in him who can settle their accounts with God, providing them freedom from death and hell and to judge for themselves what is right and believe in Jesus Christ. You see, leaven, my friends, the bottom line on this and why Jesus is so strongly giving this to everyone listening is that leaven leads to jail. Leaven leads to jail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. We have worshiped you in spirit and truth. Father, I've done the very best I know to do in reading and studying and praying to you to, to rightly divide your word today that we may be equipped and built up in your, in your word and in your truth. Father, I, 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 the duality of this passage and the practical application and the spiritual is, is mind-boggling to me as only Jesus can do, your son, our savior, so, Father, today we ask if there's anyone here that does not know you, that has this great debt that they owe of sin that they cannot pay, I pray that in this time, these last few moments today or at some point today away from this place, just whenever your spirit moves them, I pray that they understand that your son, Jesus Christ, can save them and, in a sense, settle, using this metaphor, settle with the accuser outside of court, saving them, bringing mercy to them, forgiving them, giving them freedom instead of a life of imprisonment in hell. And so, Father, we pray that your word would do what it does and your spirit would do what it does, and that is convict the hearts of humanity Correct us where we need to, Lord. Admonish us where we need it. Encourage us where we need it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a time of response?